The text for this evening's message is Matthew chapter 24, the first 14 verses. A common passage, a familiar passage, <clears throat> one that has uh, stirred uh, much speculation about the signs of the times. Matthew 24, from 1 to 14. Remember that the Jews were tremendously proud of their temple. Herod the Great had um, uh, I'm thinking in Spanish, congraciado. <laughs> Se había congraciado con los judíos. Somebody translate. He had, he had made himself uh, accepted to the Jews by uh, building a tremendous, uh, beautiful temple. And uh, they were tremendously proud of the temple, and it was a magnificent work of art. And so we read, Jesus left the temple, was going away. His disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They probably felt that temple would be forever. But... Jesus answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That happened in AD 70 till today. As he sat, upon the, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, so he goes out of Jerusalem, he's on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming, the end of the age? Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the anointed, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. And they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You might want to keep your Bible open Brothers and sisters, there's, there's too much in this passage to be unpacked in a short time that we have, so we're not going to touch everything, but we're going to touch a central part of this passage. Now, you might know that some people have accused Reformed Christians for not believing in the power and the urgency of the gospel of the need to evangelize. Now, sometimes that's because they don't understand our theology. 
there is a misunderstanding of the relationship between God's election and the preaching of the gospel and evangelism. But maybe, maybe, sometimes we are accused of not believing in the urgency of the gospel because they're right. There's a temptation to become complacent. There is a temptation to become comfortable. There is, a compla- there is a temptation to put the church into maintenance mode, what I call maintenance mode. And we're going to talk about what Jesus, what Jesus says in this passage. Now remember, from the Old Testament all the way to Revelation, we find that God uses trumpets. He uses trumpets at different times. In the Old Testament, when they went into war, they had to sound the silver trumpets and God would answer. For the feast times, the trumpets were sounded. In Revelation, Christ, in Thessalonians, Christ will come at the sound of the trumpet. I make violins as a hobby. For me, the violin is the queen of the instrument, of all the instruments. But God didn't have lyres and violins sounded. He called for trumpets to sound. Why? Armies don't use a flute. They use a bugle. Trumpets sound urgency. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. The proclamation of the gospel is urgent and merits our highest attention and our best efforts. We're going to see why. According to Matthew 24, this passage that we have just read, the gospel causes a conflict. Now, this isn't the usual concept that we have about the gospel, is it? After all, gospel means good news. But there is a conflict that the gospel produces, and we need to talk about that because Jesus talks about it, and he warns the church. Now, why do you think the advance of the, of the, of the kingdom, according to Jesus' words here, is accompanied by physical signs? Jesus mentions earthquakes, famines, wars. In the book of Revelation, we find all these themes repeated. And the reason is because the gospel has produced a conflict in the spiritual realm, which is just as real as the physical realm, and God does not want us to forget it. When God permits all the catastrophes of conflicts and wars and natural disasters in the physical world, He is reminding us that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. Natural catastrophes are called signs. And a lot of people get all sensationalist every time something big happens. Costa Rica has a lot of uh, earthquakes, and as soon as we have a, a shake, Evangelical Christians will be running around. It's a sign of the end, as if the end is coming right now. Well, Jesus says it's not yet. These are signs, but don't get alarmed. The end is not yet. They are signs because they signify, they point to something else. They point to a spiritual conflict, and it is the spiritual conflict that will bring the end of the world, not the physical signs. 
Paul reminds us of this in Romans 8 when he says that the creation groans until its final consummation. And it's groaning under the spiritual battle awaiting the redemption, the adoption of the children of God. Now, the problem is is that so often we Christians don't believe that we're at war. And that's indeed a problem because if there is a war, whoever denies the fact or ignores the fact is doomed to ruin. Only if you are prepared for the battle can you conquer. Jesus on one occasion related in Luke chapter 21, said this, be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, the anxieties of life, and that day, the final day, will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon those who live on the face of the whole earth, be always on the watch. Pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So we need to ask, how does one live in a situation of war? Well, we can compare certain aspects with war, a country at war. When a country's at war, the news of the war are preeminent. The newspaper, the radio, the television is full of news of the war. We're worried about the war. We've seen some of these things in our own country. We're at the brink of war, apparently, right now. My folks remind me of, they were children at the World War II, what life was like. Austerity becomes a necessity. My mom, re- remembers that the government encouraged people to have patriotic gardens, to garden in their backyard because all the food had to go to the troops and any vegetables that you could, that you could produce for yourself was just more food for the troops. Austerity. My dad says that going from the farm to town, they'd probably, there was no rubber. All the rubber was on the Jeeps in Europe and they'd learned to vulcanize their own take the tire apart and vulcanize the tube because they were, part, they were patched with a thousand patches. There's sacrifice for the cause. There's urgency about everything. If we're not alert, we could be conquered. We could lose our freedom. We could lose our sovereignty. Well, people of God, we are in a war infinitely worse than any war that any country has ever fought. We are in a battle for the eternal destiny of every man, woman, and child on this earth. Some people erroneously think that God's election nullifies the urgency of the battle, but it is God's election that has provoked the battle. And it is God's purpose to reclaim sinners that has produced the conflict. Jesus said at one time he came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. 
And the two-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of the Alpha and Omega in Revelation 1 and again in Revelation 19, that two-edged sword has provoked a furious spiritual conflict in this world. But I want to ask everybody a question. When was the last time in your home, around the table with the family, you talked about the spiritual battle? When was the last time you commented, how are we doing? What are we doing? What do we need to watch out for? Let's praise the Lord for advances. We need to talk about what it is that produces this conflict. The Bible is very clear. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This call to recognize the absolute uniqueness the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ is rejected by the unregenerate heart. The unregenerate heart is idolatrous. We worship anything and everything but our creator and our savior and the only Lord. The boys and girls, young person, are you accepted? as a Christian by non-Christians? Probably as long as we soft pedal Christianity, you know, if we say, well, I'm a Christian, but whatever you believe, that's, that's fine with me, I think that's fine, we'll probably all be accepted, won't we? But tell someone, you know, I believe that the Bible says that, that, that Christianity that faith in Jesus is the only valid religion and that the Bible is the only true religion about God and Jesus is the only Savior and Lord and see what kind of reaction we get. You see, this absolute message is repugnant to our modern self-sufficient society, a society which seeks to give free reign to its own sense of divinity, we think, and this is from politics to family life to individual preferences, this is in every stage of our society. We think, we feel, we've been convinced that we can not only understand the problems that we have politically, individually, personally, we think we can understand this not only, but we think we can fix it. That man, men have the potential within us. Jesus said in Matthew 24, our passage, many would come, many false prophets, many false messiahs. The message of the gospel is rejected not only by those outside the church, but by false teachers within the church. And we know that there are strong currents, currents within the church that compromise the unique and radical call of the gospel. The church's spearhead is the message. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. This Jesus, the Jesus of history, the Jesus that walked on this earth, the Jesus that was crucified on a real cross, was raised, ascended to heaven, and reigns. This Jesus is the urgent message that the church proclaims, and it will produce spiritual conflict in your life and in mine. Now in Matthew 24, Jesus teaches us that the preaching of this message is tied to the consummation of the age. He says, finalizing verse 14, this gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. Only when the gospel has been preached to the whole world will the end come. R.B. Kuyper said we can say without any doubt that the Lord will not return until the gospel has been taken to all the nations. Now, I don't know how this will be fulfilled. I don't know how it's included with internet, radio, etc. But if we look at the population of the world and the church, the establishment of the church, it looks like we're going backwards. As church population has increased, the percentage of Christians has not kept up. So I don't know what the implications are, the specific implications, but you know why? One reason is why the church seems to be going backwards is because there's a terrible conflict and the spiritual conflict overflows in physical conflict. Christians right now, as we are here, are sitting in prisons, facing death. Last month in Nigeria, a whole church was mowed down. A whole Christian church was mowed down. In India, every now and then, frequently, there are outbursts of violent persecution. And so the spiritual conflict overflows into real conflict, physical conflict, where our brothers and sisters are under oppression, prison, and martyrdom. And many have said there are many more martyrs nowadays than ever in the time of the Romans that persecuted the primitive church. People of God, the gospel call is urgent. It's urgent because there is a world in conflict. It's a spiritual conflict. And it is the gospel alone which is truth and life. The gospel call is urgent because God has fixed his cosmic watch according to the extension of the gospel. And so when you and I proclaim the gospel, especially where the church proclaims the gospel where it has not been heard, we participate directly in God's plan for the consummation of this earth. Now, I think it's clear to all of us that gospel urgency requires urgent prayer. I'm going to ask a question. I want you to remember this question. Do you pray like a soldier? Do you pray like a soldier? I want you to take that with you as we go forward. In the passage of Luke 21 that I already read, Jesus puts prayer as a contrast in, uh, to losing ourselves in the concerns of this world. The faithful soldier doesn't give himself up to personal comfort. 
He watches. He is on the alert. Now, we need to ask ourselves, why, why is prayer sometimes hard for us? Why do we lose interest in prayer? Why does prayer, why do sometimes we feel that prayer is ineffective? Well, there's one reason that's very clear from Scripture. Prayer fails when we forget what it's for. Prayer fails when we forget we are at war. You see, prayer is a wartime instrument. It wasn't made for peacetime. You know that there's lots of World War II tanks that were taken out of service and they're in municipal parks all over the country. The tank was designed for war. The war was over. We don't have a war. And we take the tank and we make it into a playground. The kids can climb up on the tank. Are we in danger of doing that with prayer? Domesticating prayer? When we forget about the war, we forget about the urgency of the gospel, then prayer becomes less urgent and less necessary. And something worse happens. We begin to use prayer for something it was never intended. Instead of prayer being the radio, the walkie-talkie to the captain for our marching orders, we domesticate prayer. We try to make it into an internal intercom, you know, from the den over to the, to the kitchen. We're too lazy to get off the sofa because we're watching football, and so through the intercom we say, hey, could you bring me down a sandwich and a Coca-Cola? Make it coca light." Prayer is meant to be the urgent call of the troops in the trenches who are under attack. And when you are in the trenches, you aren't asking for pizzas and McDonald's. You ask for what is necessary. Instruments, munitions, and more troops. And this is seen so clearly in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul says, put on the whole armor the helmet, the breastplate, you know, I can say it in Spanish. You guys all know it in English. But then he ends up saying, and be in prayer, praying always. You see, without prayer, no piece of that armor will function. Now this is clear because prayer exalts God's sovereignty and no battle will ever be won if we think we are the ones winning. And this is vitally important because we're all affected by the me-centered age. And there's a whole heresy within the church that uses prayer as if it's some sort of magic key. If I, if I declare this and if I say this in the name of Jesus, God has to do it. No, prayer functions when we are mindful of God's sovereignty. And Jesus' prayer shows this so clearly. He taught us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Prayer exalts God and his sovereignty. And at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in Gethsemane, he prays to his Father, take this cup from me if it's possible. However, not my will but thine be done. Prayer exalts God's sovereignty. And on our knees, 
with our faces to the ground, we confess we are servants of the Most High God, the Almighty Lord of Heaven, servants willing to accept His will. And we say, I will offer you my children. You know that one obstacle for raising missionaries up in the church are parents? I can say that confidently. I'm now 65 years old. <laughs> I've worked in missions for 40 years. I can tell you, parents can be obstacles for sending missionaries overseas. And I thank the Lord for my parents who in spite of the fact they grieved at not having their grandkids close to them. They praised the Lord and they felt honored that their son served the cause of missionaries, of missions. In prayer we say, I will offer my children. I will offer my money. I will offer myself for whatever you call. In Psalm 50 verse 15 the psalmist says it so clearly call, citing God God says call upon me in the day of trouble call upon me pray call upon me in the day of trouble I will deliver you and you will honor me the unescapable point here is that prayer is established by God in order to save us in the battle so that we might honor him. God commands us to call upon him. He promises salvation. And in this way we recognize his sovereignty calling to him. And when he has saved us, he commands us to give him glory. We give God, God the glory beforehand calling upon his name. And we give him glory afterwards when he has delivered us. Dear friends in Christ, how can we recover biblical prayer in these days of confusion in which we live? I believe that the urgency of the gospel requires a reorientation of our concept of prayer. The urgency of the gospel requires that God be proclaimed for what he is and for who he is. He is the only giver of life. He is the only Savior of men. He is the Sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And the urgency of prayer is that it be placed in its proper place as a means of the grace of this Sovereign God, a means of His victory in our lives, and a means of glorifying God in all we do. We don't have time to make a study of the the early church's use of prayer, but I just want to give a brief list of the things they prayed for as they were conscious of being in the trenches of the kingdom battle for the Lord. They prayed that God's word would be spread. They prayed that God would vindicate his church. They prayed for the salvation of the un unconverted. They prayed for physical healing. They prayed for courage to spread the gospel. They prayed for victory over demons. They prayed for wisdom. They prayed for their daily bread. They prayed to be able to do good works, etc., etc. What we see here is the church recognizing that it was God alone 
who gave these things. And in praying for them and receiving them through prayer, God received all the glory. God gave power. God gave courage. God gave the wisdom. God gave daily provisions such as bread. And God received honor and glory. John Piper said, God's missionary purpose is as invincible as God is God. He will accomplish his purpose by creating fervent worshipers in every people, tribe, and nation. And we join God in this mission by means of prayer. Our Heidelberg Catechism says, why is prayer necessary? And as part of the answer says, because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who ask for them with ardent and continual prayer, giving thanks. That answer has always bothered me. <laughs> and I can kind of remember the first time I really understood what it was saying. God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who ask for them with ardent and continued prayer, giving thanks. The ur urgency of the gospel requires prayer, dear brother or sister in the Lord. There has never been in the entire history of the church a man or woman used by God who is not a Christian devoted to prayer. The parable of the wicked judge and the persistent woman teaches a great lesson. You remember, a wicked judge wouldn't give justice to the woman, but she insisted in knocking on his door. And Jesus concludes the parable by saying, will not God work justice for his elect who call to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice quickly. Our world is a world in conflict. A spiritual conflict brought about by God himself for his glory. God could have left the world in no conflict and all humanity peacefully going to hell. But he didn't do that. And we, the church, are the means by which God is fulfilling his purpose on earth. And so we need to be absolutely clear about three things. We need to be clear about our message. Jesus Christ is our message. Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. This is the message that will bring about the end of the world. The message that Jesus Christ is only Savior and Lord will bring about the end of the world, not a nuclear bomb. The message of Jesus. This is the message that we must take to the ends of the world. Secondly, we must remember and we must be clear that prayer is absolutely necessary as an instrument of war. It is through prayer that we recognize our God as king, as our captain. It is through prayer that we receive what God has promised to give us. And thirdly, 
This all implies that the church must prepare itself. We're in a serious battle. We're in a battle much more serious than any physical battle can possibly be. We're in a battle for the eternal destiny of everyone. And that means the church should have as a priority training all of us. We need evangelists. We need elders. We need deacons. We need pastors. We need missionaries. We need workers, men and women to serve the cause that God has given to us. And so the church needs to take, have as a priority training and preparation. And there's many ways to do that. I trust that as your church contemplates your mission here in Southern California, that your message will sound loud and clear, Jesus Christ. I trust and I believe your prayers will be raised with fervor and sincerity and that there will be fruit upon that. And I hope that as you support the cause of world missions that these flags represent the work in Costa Rica as well. I hope that you will ensure that your missionaries that you send and that you support sound the message loud and clear, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I hope your prayers on behalf of missions will be raised with fervor and sincerity. People of God, let us be strong. Let us be courageous. Let us be a bit more sober, maybe, in our lifestyle in order to be fit for the battle. And in this way, we will bring glory to God through the victory that he is pleased to give us. To him be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your teaching in Matthew chapter 24. Thank you that you give us reminders like the, the, the physical signs to remind us. And let us, Father, forgive us for being so secular. We, we explain away physical signs. We explain away an earthquake. Oh, it's the plate tectonics. Help us to be able to understand your word, to be able to see the signs. The end is not here. They're signs. But these are reminders of something much more serious and much more uh, enduring, the spiritual battle. And so prepare your church, Father. Keep us from uh, too much comfort. Keep us from becoming apathetic. And help us to set our sights, our eyes on Jesus Christ, to pray like the soldiers you would have us to be. Father, use this congregation locally, right here in their own uh, city, as well as through their uh, support for world missions. Use the prayers of this church the efforts of this church, the donations of this church, Father, for your kingdom. And we ask all these things for your glory only 
in Christ's name, amen.